We're in Ephesians chapter 5. Um, some of you are aware that um, <clears throat> coming up is a new ministry called Life Groups. And uh, just to get you thinking together, uh, I think um, there will be a couple of Wednesday night life groups that um, um, you can be part of. And uh, it's a time of, of uh, studying God's Word, um, sharing together, uh, sitting quietly where nobody's watching you if that's how you want it to have it because it's not a deal where everybody has to talk. But uh, there will be a couple of life groups. We try to have up to 16 people in, in uh, any, any one group. So start praying about how the Lord's going to kind of shift gears with us here. We're in chapter 5 of Ephesians tonight. And um, thank you for praying for me, Ted. I appreciate that. Let me review from verse 20 on. Pastor Lee um, ended with verse 21. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul's writing this letter. He's under house arrest in Rome in about 60 A.D. And I was thinking that um, he has the right to challenge us with that verse. Giving thanks always for all things because... We've been in house arrest for the past several months. And he's telling us, hey, house arrest is nothing new, folks. Give thanks always for what? All things. How many things? All things. That's right. Then he says, verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now, I didn't go all the way back to verse 18, but speaking and singing uh, in spiritual songs, giving thanks for all things. And now in verse 21, Paul tells us that the third indication that we are filled with the Spirit, remember, don't be drunk with wine where there's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. The third indication is that we're submitting to one another. Now, let's admit it. The characteristic of our flesh most often is selfishness, self-centeredness. It ends up kind of, each of us can be a little greedy. Remember what mom did to us kids, keep us from being greedy? When we had to share something, one of us would cut it in half, the other one got to choose. That's the flesh. And so Paul is telling us to submit to one another. Now, I admit, I want my way, I want people to yield to my desires, I want to play by my rules, but there we're told to submit to one another. That's, that's God's way for us as the church to be one in Christ, submitting to one another. Do you remember the old Burma shave signs? Raise your hand if you don't. Oh, okay. Well, they were along the highway, and, and they would go, um, famous last words in the next one, of lights and shine that shine. If he doesn't dim his, I won't dim mine. Okay? And that was a, a, an actual 
Vermeshev sign. And, and that's kind of how we are. So the Lord is telling us in verse 21 to yield and submit to one another. Now, the Lord's going to move on from that. And in the next section, it's entitled, Marriage, Christ, and the Church. But as we read this next section, we're going to see that in chapter 6, as we come to it, there's also instructions for parents and children given as well. I don't want this to become a marriage enrichment class tonight or a parent education program. I've done those. But what I want us to do is be challenged by God's Word as to how we submit ourselves one to the other. As parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, next-door neighbors, and adult friends, did I get all of you? To the kids that are out in the yard playing, the junior high kids, that's our relationship to those kids. Those kids that attend Open Gate, we need to recognize that we are the primary examples of what Paul is telling us here in chapter 5. They look at us and say, what does it mean to belong to the body of Christ? So, as Paul will point out, how we submit and honor each other as brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, parents to children, all of these relationships to Christ, we are demonstrating in practical ways the relationship between Jesus and the church. The scriptures teach that the family is the core relationship of mankind. So Paul starts with the core relationship of every family, the husband and wife relationship. And I think he points out in verse 21 that we have to start there before we can move on to verse 22. We have to start each of us submitting one to another. Now right now, as we move to verse 22, most of you know what it's about. And some of you ladies are cringing and some of the men are beginning to perk up. All right. Wives... Verse 22, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Well, this tells us that when a wife submits to the leadership of her husband, she's doing it simply because this is what the Lord desires of her as to the Lord. She's trusting that God will lead her even through the inadequate ideas, opinions, and beliefs of this man who loves her. But we must realize some things that Paul is not saying. No wife should become a doormat for a selfish or abusive husband. God would never expect a wife to submit to an ungodly or immoral demand. That's a violation of his will. Uh, I've seen where it said, Godly submission never requires what what God forbids, or forbids what God requires. Verse 23. 
For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, God has ordained a structure for authority that begins with God's place as supreme or sovereign over all of his creation. So this is not about equality or inequality. It's about order and structure. It's about the structure of authority. It's about the different roles the husband and wife have in the family structure. You could say the husband sketches out the lines of the picture, but then the wife can color in all of the in between those lines. Both parties contribute equally to the painting, but they play different roles. It's an ordered equality, a husband and wife. God established a single head over the family, and it's the husband's role to supply that leadership while a, li- a wife lends her support. Now, all bodies need a head, right? It doesn't need two heads, not, nor no head, but one head. And that's why God established the single head over the family, and it's the husband's role to supply that leadership while the wife is lending her support. I like what Ruth, Billy Graham's wife, said. Ruth Graham said this, The best advice I can give to unmarried girls is to marry someone you don't mind adjusting to. God tailors the wife to fit the husband, not the husband to fit the wife. Verse 25 here. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now this is the standard for a husband's leadership position. Not that... Uh, He is perfect as Jesus was, but that to the best of his ability, he's giving himself for her needs to be met. I read this somewhere. A wife should love her husband enough to live for him, but a husband loves his wife enough to die for her. Not, Not just once. That'd be easy, wouldn't it, man? That'd be easy. Not in one gallant act. But in a million daily ways, the husband should be willing to lay down his rights to protect and nurture and minister to his wife. Verse 26, that he might sanctify, now that's setting her apart, and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. So the needs of the church, that's our needs. What are our needs? The body of Christ. Our needs were to be set apart. And I think of that as we're protected. We're protected from the world and its temptations by Christ, by the Holy Spirit. We're to be forgiven and cleansed. How are you cleansed on a daily basis according to God's Word? How are you cleansed from sin that so easily besets us, as the Bible calls it? Well, 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, that's to breathe out. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We breathe in His forgiveness. So it's just like breathing. You do this every time you need 
your, your, your sins cleansed like you would need your lungs cleansed. Verse 27, that he, this is speaking of Jesus and the church, might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So Jesus has provided for each of us, his bride, with the righteousness that we need to stand before the Father on that great judgment day, to stand there eternally as his glorious bride. How did Jesus do that? Well, it's one of Pastor Lee's favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He took our sin on himself on the cross that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul tells us that this is the job, the role, the duty of the husband as well. It's the husband's role to protect and to, to bring out the glory of, the, of, of his wife. The wife who is smothered with love just blossoms beautifully the same way we blossom forth in the love of Jesus. Verse 28. So, husbands, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I think the word so refers back to all that Jesus did for you and me. He left his lofty position in heaven. He lowered himself to meet our deepest need, the need of salvation. You see, that's how this is a picture that the husband is to be to the wife. We see it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. I have it in the New Living Translation. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Well, how does the husband do this same picture? He doesn't cling to his headship over the wife, but he gives up the privilege of being in charge to become a servant to his family. And as I've said before, he humbles himself and dies to his own desires to meet the needs of, of, of her that she has of love. These are the actions and attitudes that our young people need to see as they fellowship with us here at Open Gate. They need to observe dads and grandpas and uncles who are believers in this congregation respecting and cherishing the ladies here and in their homes. And when the children see us out in the community, they need to see this type of attitudes from us men. Husbands, these are the attitudes you should, ref should be reflecting to your children, to your families. This is what children need to observe in the family as they spend that together. And I've said this to husbands. This is the greatest gift you can give your children, to love and cherish your wife, to show that you see 
all women as God's creation to admire and love, not to use or possess. To be the kind of of husband that a wife can easily, readily submit to in the Lord. Verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. So husbands, you're the ones who are going to benefit from your showing your love to your wife. Verse 30. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is why verse 29 is true. If a man resents his wife, he is resenting and hating his own flesh. Verse 32. This is a great mystery, Paul says, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The Spirit-filled Christian family is God's human demonstration to the world around us of His love, mercy, and grace. The husband-wife relationship is at the core, the focal point of this picture that God is painting for the world to see. And then Paul sums it all up in one verse. Verse 33. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This verse has become a theme for understanding the biblical difference between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. The main focus that most women need is to feel loved, to feel an emotional, expressive response from her husband, that the husband demonstrates this love through thoughtful acts of caring to be treasured and cherished, that the husband shows a need on his part to spend personal and intimate time together with one thing added, doing what matters to her. Now, why would God command the husband to love their wives even in ways that are not natural or easily done by the male of our species? Men, you can say amen to that. It's because God understands women. God understands the need in a woman and he understands that one of the greatest needs a woman has is to feel the security that she is loved supremely by her husband. That there is no one else that can attract his eye or attract his attention. That she is loved supremely. So God commanded the husband to fulfill that need in the woman so that she could feel the security of her husband's love, knowing that she is number one in his life. Now, the main focus for us men is to be respected, to be honored or looked up to, that that we're capable and admired, valued for the things we do. So why would you suppose that God would make such a rule that a woman is to find ways to respect her husband even when he fails and falters day after day? 
to find ways to respect him so she will feel comfortable submitting to him. It's because God also understands how he created us men. God knows that in man there is that male macho image that somehow a man needs to feel that he's in control, that he's, that he's able, that he can handle that situation, that he can fix it. That's just part of the male ego. God understanding the male ego and us men and our needs gave to the wife the one rule by which her husband can feel that he really is the man of the house and in control and therefore can very, is very capable and loving toward her. So he gave the woman one simple rule which if she should follow would make her husband a very responsible, loving person, easy to get along with, to submit to. And I submit most, if not all, marital problems stem out of the disobedience of these two rules. There are only two rules for a happy marriage. One for the husband, one for the wife. But marriages get in trouble because these rules are broken. When, a, when both husband and wife are following God's one rule for each of them, then she feels that security of love, and thus she feels the freedom to submit to Him. And because she submits, He feels that total freedom of expressing that love that He has for her. And things can just get better and better. Well, that brings us to chapter 6. The Lord has also given us directions for children-parent relationships. Verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That phrase in the Lord, I think, is important. Because if parents aren't godly, and if they are demanding children to do things, or requiring them to do things that are improper from a spiritual base, then I don't believe that obedience is required for those specific things. Obey your parents in the Lord. There's a higher conscience that God has given us by His Holy Spirit. Now, I've warned students to be careful at this point when they have unchurched or unbelieving parents that have told them, you're not going to attend that church anymore or go to those youth meetings. And kids have come to me and said, Pastor Don, we don't have to obey that, do we? And I say to them, well, you need to ask yourself, what are my parents intending to teach me by these restrictions? And almost to a student, I have found that the parents were very disappointed in how their child was acting at home, being disobedient, argumentative, and lazy, and their intention was to let their kids know that they disapproved of this new faith of theirs. It seemed a waste of time, just another excuse to get out of the house. And so I challenged them, be the witness that your parents need to recognize the love of Christ in your life. And over time, I've seen time and time again, with a lot of personal effort and uh, 
a lot of prayer that many students were able to become an effective witness to these parents. Many who ended up joining their children at church. You see, one of the problems when kids witness to their unbelieving parents is they become the spiritual parent of someone who is supposed to be their parent. And that's hard for parents to recognize that. Verse 2, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. Well, I want to tell a quick story. In his later years, my dad would point out to us kids the promise that Paul is speaking of here in verse 2. Now, some people would think, well, he just did that so that we would want to live a long life and honor him every day. But the thing was, he lived that. He, he found that in Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And I might add that Charlie, that's my dad, was a true example of this, living to the age of 95 before the Lord took him home. One example took place right up here in the mountains. Uh, the sawmill had been finally shut down and the two brothers, my uncles, left California for jobs in Seattle. When Grandpa Tally, who only knew how to do sawmilling all of his life, found a long-term milling job up north in Westwood, up by Lake Almanor. Dad was even willing to leave a good welding job and make one more move with his family to make it possible for Grandpa to continue doing the only job that he had ever learned to do. The job opportunity fell through, through the lying and cheating of another mill owner. Lee and I were able to continue the path that led us both into the ministry because the Lord, through this dishonest man, shut the Westwood door. <laughs> I'm kind of glad. But it was hard on Dad. Verse 4. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Now how do parents provoke their children to wrath? Well, I kind of thought of it this way. What are the things done by people who have authority over you that provoke you? So I just made my own list. They don't listen to you when you want to, to say something. They pull rank on you. They have double standards. Illogical reasoning. The, remember the just because? Um, being told but not taught not having mercy or grace, and plain favorites? Well, I think one of the cruelest things that I've observed fathers doing is teasing their children to the point of distraction where they get a kick out of holding out a piece of candy or a cookie and they bring it back just as the child grabs for it and bring it back until the child just gets frustrated and they're laughing. And God's word says, provoke not your children to wrath. Another thing I've seen working in the public schools, well, I think we can provoke our children to wrath by demanding unreasonable achievements from them. 
thinking, well, after all, it's my child, and they've got to be a genius. And it's always the teacher's fault. So we sometimes are trying to push them beyond their capacities, and that creates frustration. We need to be careful that we don't push them to the point of frustration. Provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up, verse 4, in the training and admonition of the Lord. Teach them about the Lord. Teach them the things of God and the ways of God. The Greek word translating, uh, translated for train, training means discipline. Admonition is encouragement. Martin Luther used, uh, used to say that a parent needs both a rod and an apple to raise kids. Well, today we think of discipline and an iPod, maybe. Or it's not that kind of apple. Okay. Um, he meant a rod to discipline the child when they rebel and an apple to reward his good and godly initiative. Raising children requires a healthy balance. Kids need a rod for discipline and a nod for approval. Now we're going to see in the next five verses that Paul wasn't into what we call today social justice. He wasn't attempting to change society from the outside. He was seeking to change people, their attitudes, values, behaviors, prejudices, by changing their heart from the inside. As Christians, let's live out our high calling, not only in the home, but in the, in the job. Verse 5, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Now the Roman world in Paul's day was full of slaves and bond servants. Now some of you may think that your boss treats you like a slave, but uh, he doesn't. What Paul says to slaves here does apply to modern employees, employers. Verse 6, not with eye service as men pleasers. So employees, don't just please your boss. As he says here, not with eye service as men pleasers. It's referring to people who do their best work when the boss walks in the room or is looking over their shoulder. He goes on in verse 6, But as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord, not to men. In other words, work with sincerity from the heart, as if you were serving Jesus himself, not just earning a paycheck. Verse 8, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. In other words, I'm ultimately looking to the Lord for my rewards for my life and for my work. Someone once said about our work attitudes, we should all be able to turn our work into worship. We're serving the Lord in all that we do. Verse 9. And you masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, 
knowing that your own master also. And it could read like this, He who is both their master and yours, and knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Christian slave owners are reminded that they too have a master, that they are bond slaves to the Savior. They're to give their servants the same mercy and grace their Lord has given them. Well, these principles of submitting to one another, wives submitting to husbands, children to parents, slaves to their masters, well, these last three were nothing new in the Roman and Greek culture. They expected that. But our Christian faith was the first and only faith to introduce the principle of reciprocal responsibility. Husbands also had an obligation, and that obligation was to love their wives. Parents were not to provoke their children, and bosses shouldn't bully their workers. The Christian ethic transformed homes and society. It revolutionized whole cultures. This is God's standard for us as believers. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would help us live up to your word. That as men, we would serve those around us. That we would lead by serving, by giving. By giving up the male's superior position. We pray, Lord, that as parents we would give mercy and grace as we give discipline. That as parents, grandparents, that we, Lord, would be consistent in how we live. And so, Lord, as we apply this word to our lives, we pray that the young people and children who watch us as adults, as we minister to each other, as we defer to each other, as we, as we are tolerant of, of the differences in this church family, that, Lord, they would see the Lord Jesus in our lives. We pray in His precious name. Amen. It's good to have you here tonight. Thanks for coming.